We spoke a little about the theme yesterday, or this rather ambitious title, Infinite Possibility. We referred this morning to the both infinite, can't find our way outside of it, and immediate sense of awareness. We looked in various ways at the way in which awareness is always here, abiding freely, and the way experience is always here, whatever flavour, unfolding freely. And as we give attention to this way of uh, speaking and pointing to experience, infinite, immediate, always here, always available, it gives a suggestion that understanding these things ought to be rather simple and straightforward. The impression that if uh, experience is always here, awareness is always here, then should be a simple matter of just being always here with it. And in a way it is a simple matter but it turns out not an easy one. In fact, there's something about its simplicity that makes us ignore its obviousness because we're so used to creating a lot of complexity. We're used to all the... We're only used to a here that we contrast with a there rather than the all-inclusive here-ness of things. We're only used to a sense of experience that we locate in a me that has its counterpoint with a world. A me that has its counterpoint with a you. So here we are, with our complexities, with our habits, with our ways of conceiving, with our tendency to struggle rather a lot with life, even when the activity of that life is something as very, very basic as sitting down quietly, breathing. And we have the, the, these sort of pointing out instructions, invoking life's immediacy, openness, naturalness, and inherent freedom. And it may be that at moments we actually, will we know that for ourselves? Maybe in moments that we touch or taste one or other of those qualities, that we taste a sense of life's free unfolding, that we taste a sense of life's mysteriousness, like we were hearing earlier with the trees, that we touch a sense of life's vast, wide openness. And so, one in one way, that is, that's the orientation of our practice. Right? Inclining our attention towards the immediacy of things, inclining our attention towards the fact that awareness, the light of awareness is on, revealing experience, 
so as to touch and taste that in various ways, in different ways, in deepening ways, we might say. And as well, and sometimes this is our great hope in practice, as well that some kind of lightning strike might occur. Some kind of kensho, is the Japanese word, for a sudden bolt of enlightening wisdom. Oh yes, thank God for that. And that may happen, that does happen. Sometimes, uh, you know, in different degrees. Sometimes in ways that are inspiring, sometimes in ways that are shocking, sometimes in ways that uh, the effect and the liberating effect is felt very clearly and very strongly for some time. And after that some time, which may be uh, some moments or some minutes or some days or some weeks, out of that some time, usually the, the habits and tendencies of the self-structure start to reassert themselves. And the main habit of the self-structure, of course, like we were saying last night, is that it appropriates all experience. It makes everything into m me and mine. So that experience that actually freed us from the sense of self, freed us from this narrow thing called me over here and you over there, ends up easily getting claimed by the self. My enlightening experience. And then the impression that I had it, and now, damn, I've lost it. So those kinds of uh, lightning bolts, those kenshows, those moments where the conventional, or dualistic, we might say, way of experiencing is seen through, those moments in which it drops away, and one knows a freer way of perceiving. One knows the freedom of life's unfolding. Are really important, really beautiful when they happen. But one, you cannot make them happen. And two, when they happen, pretty much certainly, they will also cause some problems. And the problem being that one so gets so fixated on the experience rather than simply absorbing the wisdom that it reveals, one gets so fixated on the experience that one tends to contract around it. This, in other words, the sense of self gets stuck on the experience. My great experience. So, like I say, one of the things we're doing here is inclining our attention in that way. So that in, even in the way we're languaging the meditation instructions, rather than a language which reinforces the sense of self, I'm bringing my attention to my breath, we've been trying to evoke this freer sense of things, resting into the awareness in which breath and body appears. And, like I say, that inclining in, uh, 
in different ways, subtle or strong, momentary or longer lasting, start to stand out for us. And as well as the quality of the experience standing out, the the kind of the the gem, the, the the gift of the ways in which those experiences can quite fundamentally, or actually very fundamentally, shift our understanding of the way life is, shift our understanding of the nature of consciousness, shift our understanding of what's possible for us in how we inhabit life, in how we respond to life. So that inclination and that evoking of that kind of uh, breakthrough in that sort of breakthrough experience is is important. We're honouring that in the way we practice. And in fact, some teachings, some teachers, make very much of that. That, that actually the whole... Practice is aimed at that. Pointing to immediacy. Look, awareness is here. Experience is here. Self is illusory. Wake up. Didn't work? Okay, I'll explain again. And then, then that's, that's the whole teaching, right? Exp- come on, experience is here. Awareness is here. Self is illusory. Wake up. And when we don't understand, and we, we, we like the idea, but can't wake up, And we ask uh, the question, but what about so-and-so? And then there are usual the stock responses, who's asking the question? <laughs> so, that kind of breakthrough in understanding, deeply valuable though it is, and uh, the ways, and certainly in different ways, that uh, happens in this practice. But to focus uniquely on that would be a little one-dimensional. One-dimensional as an approach to understanding. And also limiting because even though that breakthrough may come, it, the uh, focusing exclusively on it doesn't compensate for what the self-structure will do with it afterwards. Right? The reasserting its ownership, the making it into mine, and then actually living in a new kind of duality. Right? The duality of that wonderful experience that I know is out there somewhere, and this condition I'm living in where I'm removed from it even though the understanding was one which, re- which revealed there can be no removal from anything. So, like I say, that's part of our orientation. Inclining to the immediacy and vastness and here and now freedom of things as it is. But it's not our only orientation, importantly. And so because today some of the language has of the way we've been describing practice and speaking about experience has been uh, pointing in that direction, I'd just like to highlight a little bit uh, some of the other 
approaches some of the other nuances of our practice. But also, and, there, and the transformational benefit and importance of these other nuances. So the first is that is the sense of grounding. Rather than what can be a kind of gr- reaching out for or grasping after some cognitive shift, we're putting a lot of emphasis on grounding our attention, on a lot of it, uh, attention on embodiment. And it seems like a straightforward matter. But for many of us, it's not at all straightforward. Many of us actually experience ourselves as like heads on wheels. Wheeling around. (laughs) I can see the, the horrified nods of recognition. Wheeling around with a lot of high-speed processing going on up here. And there's a great limit to how much sense we can make of things with that kind of high-speed processing. So this emphasis on grounding is one of actually learning to deepen our attention, to actually to have a fuller attention. Or we might also describe it as a way of discovering that consciousness does not live in our head. And maybe we sort of get that philosophically, although for some we literally even disagree, even philosophically. But how easily we orientate to our way of processing experience as if consciousness lived in the head. And you may have noticed yourself, even in attending to breath and body, and body sitting. What we were talking about earlier is that head-down approach, a sort of surveying the breath. Oh yes, that's the breath. It's coming in, it's going out. And there's a kind of sort of narrative remove at which we sit and observe. I think that language of observing the breath of the observing experience isn't actually a very helpful one for meditation. Because observing suggests some remove. We observe from up here, right? We observe with the eyes. And we're interested in actually an intimacy with experience. To abide intimate with the breath. Like we were saying of the Buddha's instruction, to know the breath in the breath, to know the body in the body. And often we don't realize how disembodied we are until we start to get a little bit embodied. We don't even know often what embodiment is, what it even means. 
Because many of us have never really had the conscious experience of knowing the whole sense, the whole felt spherical uh, feel of our body lit up by awareness. And this is a practice that actually leads in that direction so that it becomes not even necessarily after a great deal of time if we're sincere in the way we apply it so that it becomes normal to have a, a, a sense of a fullness of feeling of what's happening so that our processing of experience is partly cognitive but that's just one part of it so that our processing kind of includes a feeling into the whole context of what's happening a sensitivity to the emotional affect of what's happening Yes, some cognitive processing of what's happening, but also some space around that cognitive processing that's able to see, oh, what, that's a, what kind of view am I giving rise to? How am I processing this? Am I blinkered in any way? Is my reactivity activated in any way? Not because we're asking these questions cognitively, but the embodiment is an attunement to any reactivity that might arise. Again, we experience reactivity in terms of the, the thoughts about it. Usually just the content of the reactivity. Right? Like, how could she have said that? How could he have done that? That's the way we usually experience reactivity. And yet, from kind of embodied attention, we pay more attention not to that familiar old rant of the reactive mind, but to the, f the sense of tightness, the feel of the posture of indignation, or jealousy, or anger, or confusion, or whatever that reactivity might be. So, that's a big part of what we're cultivating. That's a part of the, the kind of, yeah, the ground of our practice. Grounding our attention. That stability that we were, have been invoking in the posture and recognizing with the trees. Also, another nuance of our practice is that we're learning. Again, actually, not so much in a cognitive sense, but in terms of we're, we're seeing the nature of our experience. We're learning in terms of the opportunity for insight into what's happening. Different categories of insight. And first being insight into our own sort of personal or psychological experience. Which you probably had many opportunities today, right? Just to see the way you relate to discomfort, for example, like we were hearing earlier. 
the opportunity to have insight into what I do when impatience arises or when sadness arises insight into how we are with the natural waves of emotion that uh, get triggered in our experience some of us our tendency is to kind of wallow in emotions in a kind of melodramatic way in a self-pitying way oh my life my issues and my problems and my relationships and my heart and my and we make a big deal out of my emotions some of us have a tendency to sort of uh, lift out into a very rational approach well of course what I need to do is such and such and, you, know, you might no I won't go I won't say that <laughs> I was going to attribute a clumsy gender generalization to emotional styles, but I won't. (laughs) So that style of kind of uh, withdrawing and being rather dry and cold and lifted out of the fluid world of emotions. Afraid, in fact, of emotional life. So we get, by just by sitting here, and just by walking around, and just by eating and resting, from this place of being intimate with, being curious about, being attuned to what's happening, we get to kind of study ourselves. And sometimes in, in seeing our own psychological and emotional and historical patterning, there are those insights where we kind of join up the dots, like, oh yeah, I, I, that's really familiar to me. And we might notice where it's familiar from, the ways that habit or tendency got formed in our family background, etc., etc. <coughs> so we're learning about our experience. And we're also learning about the nature of experience, not so much uh, the personal psychological, but actually the way experience is learning about its fluidity, like we've been speaking about today. In such a way that has an affect, the more I learn, not uh, in the idea, but in the attunement, whether that's the attunement to my own breath, or to my own changing sensations, or to the sounds around me, or to the unreliable flickering of my thoughts and desires and ideas, etc. The more we attune to that, the more we learn that when I get tight around those things, things, life feels very complicated to me. And the more that we learn that, the more I allow the simple passage of those things, the more I let breath breathe, the more I let body abide the more I let life pass through me, pass freely through awareness, the more gracefulness, the more ease, the more sensitivity, the more responsiveness there is.
And these nuances that uh, that grow and deepen inevitably as we practice, we may not notice at the time actually how powerfully these things are impacting us, which is partly why I'm speaking about them now. It may appear to us, if we don't look carefully, that all I've done today is sit around and feel variously bored, tired, restless, confused and hungry. (laughs) It may appear like that. But actually, those things are just just like the dust on the edges of our practice. Actually, what we've been doing is inclining the mind towards the immediacy and freedom of life. And we've been learning the art, studying the art, practicing the art of grounding our attention. And we've been creating the conditions to have insight into our patterning and into the way life and experience forms and unforms. And I think it's important to recognize that that's going on too. Sometimes it's actually a way of holding ourselves a little steady when practice feels difficult or dispiriting in some way. Another thing we're doing is what we might call purifying. And that word can sound a little kind of morally heavy sometimes. It's kind of as if, uh, you know, kind of whipping oneself to purify one's sins or something, which isn't quite what I mean. But as we sit and as we cultivate a certain steadiness, you know, various discomforts arise in the body. And often they can't be particularly related even to the posture of sitting. Sometimes the heat or discomfort may be in the legs, but often it might be in the shoulders or back or neck or head. And those areas really aren't under any pressure just by sitting around here. But what's happening in giving space to ourselves, actually, in giving space to our experience, uh, we allow that which has been undigested, that which has been refoulé. How can you you translate that the other way? How do we say refoulé? Repressed, thank you. Repressed, suppressed, ignored, denied. It gets. It finally has space to start to move, and some of those movements generate heat, discomfort, generate a certain physical intensity. In other words, as well as sometimes generating quite some emotional intensity, and in how we react to that. That also can feel rather dispiriting if we're just hoping for a comfortable time or something. But I think that also, that recognition that what one's doing in cultivating a certain steadiness, the term in the tradition which we were talking about last week is patient endurance, which sounds a bit grim, but 
We also spoke about it last week actually as love. Right? The willingness to experience what's here. It's like a profound respectfulness to life. The willingness to experience what's here, not just because I like it, because I want it, but because it's what he- what's here. The willingness to bear with a certain amount of discomfort. The willingness to be gentle with various pains or intensities. For one, it actually allows that undigested material to burn off. And two, it cultivates that very precious quality of sensitivity, willingness, patience, attunement. And of course, another thing we're doing together Another nuance of our practice, which we might easily overlook, is that we're living together. We're hanging out together. We're being together. We're supporting each other. And that's something that's easy to take for granted. But you know, if you'd been the only one here following the schedule today, I wonder how steadily you would have kept to it. So there's the receiving of an enormous amount of support from each other. And of course, by, just by your presence here, you're providing, offering, radiating even, that support to others. I think that's a very... It's an important and beautiful nuance of our practice that's easy to overlook. This thing of being together, caring for one another, actually, in simple ways, in the ways we take care of the work tasks, in the care in moving around each other in a crowded meditation hall. Caring for other, like we were saying last night, by leaving each other alone as well as the being together that's then expressed in the contact and communication we might have. The listening to each other. The living together which exposes us to each other's humanity. We often live and work, of course, with other people in some ways. And yet, if we look carefully, it's easy for us to find ourselves living and working and socialising in our own little bubble. We live and work and socialise with people with whom there's some shared social background, some often some kind of shared, comfortable, political affinity, etc., etc., And it's easy for us to see the humanity of those we love and share much with. But we need to feel the humanity of those we don't know, and those we're not sure about. For some of you, being here might feel a little uncomfortable. The Buddhistishness of things might feel a little uncomfortable. The fact that I bow 
when I come in and then I turn and bow to you and that some of you think, oh my God, should I bow back or do I not have to or whatever. It might be a little uncomfortable. We're talking about benevolent spirits hanging out in the treetops. <laughs> might be a little uncomfortable. The, the speaking earlier about benevolent forces hanging around in the trees. Might be a little uncomfortable. But we don't need to share views. We don't need to agree with each other to feel one another's humanity. In the early days of this practice, when the Sangha, the community, was forming around the Buddha, and people were both wildly enthused by this, uh, the practice as they were learning it from the man, and of course full of their own ideas about how the community should develop and who had the best understanding. And, uh, and the Buddha's encouragement for resolving dispute, for resolving disharmony, for resolving the kind of the friction with which we feel ourselves kind of coming up against these other damned human beings was to come together and sh- meet together, hang out together, share food and lodgings, practice together, and then see what happens to the disputes and the differences. That's a rather uh, radical idea. Mostly we know how to resolve differences by, just by, by talking about them, which sometimes can be very helpful. And sometimes we can find that the more we talk about, the more we kind of entrench in our own views. So with that nuance too, we have a kind of particular good fortune in being here in an environment that supports care, that supports sensitivity, that supports us seeing each other's humanity. It's also a very good antidote to that that tendency of self-structure to make it all about me. The tendency to be super concerned about my practice, my mind states, my cushion, my space, my dinner, my silence, etc., etc., or whatever, you fill in your own little blanks there. And in that, to get defensive or possessive, uh, resistant or reactive, to have what's sometimes called the vipassana vendetta, Right. The one person that really annoys us for some reason, just because of the way they breathe, <laughs> or whatever it is. And it's sometimes very relieving to the heart as we practice together, but also as we hear from each other. It's one of the principal reasons I encourage you to speak in the hall and that we make those times to explore together. Relieving to us to recognize and to hear, oh, 
And it's not just my pain, my struggle. Others also are having some difficulty. Others also are kind of bearing with that there's what we were earlier calling this shared field of goodness. And we're invited actually to trust this field of goodness, to lean in to this field of goodness. It may be in grounding our attention, like we were just saying, and in studying and learning about our experience, and in purifying, giving space to that which we've been turning away from in life. And in living together and leaning into this field of practice, it may be that those nuances of practice, easily overlooked as they are, are actually some of the primary and powerful conditions for seeing straight and directly and deeply into life. For dropping the rigidity and narrowness of all that me-filtering. For daring to open our attention in such a way that that vastness, that freeness, that spaciousness of life becomes all too clear to us. All we can do is be sincere. Sincere with our attention, sincere with our hearts, sincere with our willingness to attune and bear with what's happening. And that sincerity gives us a certain confidence in bearing with things when they're difficult. And that sincerity gives us a certain access to the blessings and the wonder and the beauty, and the depth that shines through the way we're practicing. So, I offer these reflections in the service of that sincerity, in the service of this deepening. Okay, thank you. So it's ten to nine. A little digestive time for um, some walking to short sit together in about twenty minutes and to end the day together. So if you can ring the bell, Jonathan, at ten past. And then we'll sit just for a short time together to end the evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.